Welcome to the first episode of the series of Critical Psychiatry Talks. We thought it would only be fair to kick it off with Joanna Moncrieff. She is a consultant psychiatrist and one of the founding members of the Critical Psychiatry Network. In this session, she talks about her experience in psychiatry training, of how when she was a medical student, she enjoyed her psychiatry rotation and felt that it fitted well with her other interests. During her specialty training, she describes how she starts becoming more critical of many aspects of the mainstream psychiatry practice, and she goes into more detail about her interest in psychiatric drugs. She is critical of the disease center model of psychiatric drugs, which portrays the idea that they correct known disease states, and instead she advocates for a drug center model. This model acknowledges that there are not known biological abnormalities targeted by drugs, but that these drugs work by altering the normal function of the brain. During this session, she quotes many examples of research papers, to which you can find the links in this episode details. We hope you enjoy the session. I thought I'd just talk about my my training and and how I um, how I ended up where I, I did and why I set up the Critical Psychiatry Network and how I've survived in psychiatry. I thought that really it might be the most um, useful thing to share with people. Um, so I, I apologise if it seems a bit indulgent. I've never done this before. <laughs> it feels like having a therapy session actually. <laughs> um, so. Uh, so, so the first thing is that I probably should never have done medicine in the first place. And I did realise when I went into psychiatry that a lot of psychiatrists feel like that. They're people who actually are interested in other things. Like for me, it was philosophy and politics, particularly that I was interested in when I was, um, when I was a teenager. And, uh, but I ended up doing science. My father was a doctor, so I sort of got channeled into medicine. Um, and then when I got to medical school, I realized that I really wasn't very interested in it at all. And I spent, I, I tried to get out of medical school a few times. I went to see a professor of law on one occasion and said, please, can I transfer to law? I, you know, I'm just, this just isn't me. I'm not interested in it. And, um, you know, I find it very boring. And he said, oh my God, if you find medicine boring, you know, you'll find law 10 times more boring. <laughs> so just go back and put up with it. <laughs> um, so somehow I didn't manage to get out of it. Uh, and, uh, and I did really enjoy my psychiatry attachments. And, um, you know, I read, was reading Thomas Sars and R.D. Lang and people like that. And I had a couple of, a couple of experiences that stuck with me from medical school, uh, psychiatric experiences, which were interesting. So one was um, I was working for some psychiatrist and he uh, saw a new patient who had an episode of depression. And then he just said to me, you know, uh, sort of third year medical student, maybe fourth year by that time, okay, right, you can go and do psychotherapy with this woman, you know, go, go off and see her, she's your patient now. Um, so I did psychotherapy with this, with, with this patient for um, a few weeks. And um, she was someone who had, I, I remember the case so clearly. So she'd someone, it was someone who had had a very abusive first marriage and she'd got out of it 
and she'd been saved by her second husband who was she thought is this great paragon who'd helped and supported her and so she felt terribly guilty that she was still sort of a bit unhappy with you know a bit unhappy and anxious and um it didn't feel that she was functioning very well and over the course of of talking for a few sessions she came to the realization that actually her second husband wasn't this great paragon and actually was very undermining um, and was part of the reason why she had such a low opinion of herself and really was still failing to function. And so by the end of the therapy, she decided she was going to leave him. Um, and she seemed to be much better. And so the lesson I took from that, because I mean, I certainly did not have any uh, real role in her transformation, was that people can change themselves and can change their situations. Um, and then the other one was was a situation that, um, th that I saw several times after this, which was a young woman who had been admitted to one of the old asylums, which was still just about open in those days, with a, with a first psychotic episode, and she must have been about 17. And she was very psychotic. She was very thought disordered. She was talking about having been raped. Um, but not in a straightforward way, in a very disordered way. She was put on antipsychotics, and a couple of weeks later, we were brought along to see her, and there she was sort of drooling and sedated and zombified, but no longer going on about how she'd been raped and no longer spouting out all this thought disordered stuff. And she was presented to us as, oh, look, you know, she's much better now. She's much better now after her two weeks of chlorpromazine or whatever she'd had. Um, and it was just one of a number of examples that, that hit me over the next few years that confirmed to me that treatment really meant suppression. So those were my experiences um, as a medical student. And I also, in the, in the last year of medical school, I was so uh, fed up with finding, you know, finding the course a bit dull that I went and did some extramural classes in philosophy with uh, an amazing philosophy teacher who's, who, who had been a monk, very interesting man, and, and then become a, a philosophy lecturer. And his two passions were Descartes and Wittgenstein. So that was, that was that's the, the sum total really of my philosophy education. A few extra mural classes in um, when I was a final year medical student, but they were very good. Um, and I also did an intercalated year, which was the only an intercalated year in social science, which uh, which I did enjoy and sort of gave me an opportunity to feel like I was sort of being, you know, studying again properly and learning. And I'm grateful for that. Always been grateful for that um, background. So then I went, having failed to get out of medicine, I then went straight into a psychiatry training job, and by um, co complete coincidence. I ended up at, in, in a hospital that was attached to St. George's Hospital Training Scheme. And I don't know what it's like these days, but St. George's, when I was there, was a very, very psychotherapeutically oriented training scheme. Um, and so, which I think was, was really good. So there was a lot of focus on trying to understand what was going on with people in making a sort of proper formulation and coming to a proper understanding of patients. Obviously not everyone worked in that way but it was sort of an ethos that that pervaded the training and, and, and the work that went on there um, so that was 
that was good. And I suppose then when I started to meet other people going into psychiatry, I started to realize that the lots of people like me had ended up in psychiatry because of similar, um, similar concerns about, or similar dissatisfaction with medicine. But the first thing that I really noticed when I started working as a junior psychiatrist was I, I, I thought that I'd come along to do this great job and to save all these poor people from being inappropriately medicalized and sectioned, you know, when actually there was nothing really wrong with them. Um, and this was just a con political conspiracy. Uh, I don't know whether people think like that anymore. This is probably me reading far too much literature from the 60s. Uh, but when I started working in psychiatry, I realized it seemed to me there were far more people trying to get into the system than were trying to get out. Um, so lots of people actually wanted to be medicalized and wanted to be treated. Um, and there the weren't, and, and, and the people that didn't want to be often had a lot of problems and needed some sort of help, even if they, even if we might disagree with the sort of help they were getting. Um, so, so that was a, that was a surprise, but I still felt very uncomfortable about the issue of coercion. And it took me a long time to get to a position where I, I felt okay about it. And I'll try and share my screen now because we, so in an early critical psychiatry conference, we invited David Cohen over, who's an academic, a, a US academic, who had, whose background is social work actually. And he still works um, clinically as a social worker. So he's a very grounded person. Um, but he came and gave us a talk and he said, um, and it sort of surprised me that the, you know, that however small a part of psychiatric practice coercion is, it is still the fundamental bedrock of the whole system. So this is a quote from a, a book um, by, by David Cohen and some of his colleagues uh, summing up his sentiment, coercion runs deep and wide throughout psychiatry and the mental health system creating an unavoidable yet strangely silent climate of intimidation and acquiescence. And I think that's so true. I think, you know, that the people who end up being sectioned and being taken into hospital against their will are just the pinnacle of a huge system that is based on the knowledge that this can happen, that you can uh, lose your liberty and be taken into hospital against your will. So I think it is a really fundamental thing to come to terms with. Um, and, uh, and as I said, I, I realized that it, it's not the case as I had at one point naively thought that we, you know, that, that psychiatrists were simply sectioning people who were a bit eccentric or a bit different. Um, you know, by and large, certainly in this country, the people who end up on section are people who are quite disturbed and who are either causing themselves serious problems or causing other people serious problems. Um, so, so I come to the position that you know that that some that that these people do need help of some sort, but I I still remain uncomfortable with our current system because it portrays the because it's medicalized basically and because therefore it portrays the act of coercion um, it, it presents the act of, act of coercion as if it is something that is in this person's interest which I feel is fundamentally dishonest um, sometimes. I think people are 
sectioned, you know, purely for their own interests, but very often people are sectioned for the interests of other people because they are making other people's lives difficult or sometimes they are causing danger to other people. So a number of things have helped me to um, come to terms with this. Um, George Schmuckler, who was a consultant at the Maudsley Hospital, wrote several papers and was quite influential, influential in putting forward the view that mental health legislation should be based on capacity. So we should only be forcing people to do something or entitled to force people to do something um, if they lacked capacity and if there was general agreement that um, overriding their wishes would be in their best interests. So he argued that we don't need a mental health act, we just need a mental capacity act. And, and that was very helpful for me when just going out to do assessments under the mental health act. I felt that I was reasonably happy if I felt that in, in getting someone, forcing someone to come into hospital, if I really felt that they could not make decisions about their own lives, that they had become so confused um, that they couldn't make decisions. It seemed to me that, that in that situation, they needed to be taken somewhere where they, where they could be safe and to keep other people safe. So I think the idea of capacity-based legislation is a really good one. And, and, and it's what I still use if I'm doing um, a Mental Health Act assessment. I feel that that is what I'm making a judgment on. Um, and when I feel someone lacks capacity, then I may feel that it's appropriate to take them into hospital. Um, and the other, the other um, thing that has made me, that has helped me come to terms with the uh, coercion in psychiatry is looking at the history of psychiatry. So does anyone know who this man is? <laughs> Very controversial figure, particularly at the moment. Dershowitz. Dershowitz, this is Alan Dershowitz, that's right, who um, uh, is uh, an American lawyer who defended O.J. Simpson and who recently um, offered to or, or wrote some articles in um, supporting Donald Trump um, when he was being impeached. It turns out that Alan Dershowitz was, um, was, was an academic lawyer with an interest in mental health law in his um, early life. And he wrote two excellent historical articles about the origins of mental health law, which I would really, really recommend. I, I've circulated them before on the network, but I will circulate them again for people who weren't on it when I last circulated them. Uh, they're very, very long and detailed, but they're really worth reading. And so what he, what he describes is how mental health law arises out of informal um, practices of social control that uh, existed, you know, have existed in all societies. And, and he traces their existence in England from Saxon times, so sort of the post-Roman post Empire period, through to the time at which mental health law starts to be codified. And his argument really is that as the criminal justice system becomes um, is delineated and becomes something that is widely accepted, a whole area of social policing is left out of that, the sort of social policing that deals with lower level crime and antisocial behaviour, but also the sort of social policing that deals with people who cannot easily be dealt with under the criminal justice system because they are too confused 
And so the mental, mental health law arises to fill a lacuna, a lacuna that is um, left by the, by the criminal justice system, a lacuna in the criminal justice system. So what does that say? It says that the business of psychiatry is the business of social control. It is the business of dealing with people whose behavior um, is problematic for the rest of society. Uh, and this is something this, you know, these forms of control have taken place since time immemorial, but it's not easy to encompass them within the criminal law. So uh, th this is, this I think is very consistent with Foucault's arguments. Foucault is saying that psychiatry is basically grafted onto earlier, earlier systems of social control in order to grant them legitimacy at a time when, when, when the criminal law is becoming more important and the principles of the criminal law make it difficult to act outside of the criminal law, uh, to make, make it difficult to act extrajudicially. And, uh, and the, in, in fact, the, the legal processes that lead to, that feed into the Mental Health Act have started to develop since the Tudor times in England and are essentially the poor laws. The poor laws were a way of helping to sustain people who couldn't look after themselves, helping, they were basically an early welfare system, but they were also a way of managing community problems that couldn't be managed in other ways. So poor law officials would organize for someone to be to, to would organize for local neighbors to look after someone if if uh, if an individual became too much for their family to look after them um, so this paper by Peter Rushton another historical paper is a really interesting paper about this about how the the poor laws operated to provide um, welfare and social control basically prior to the mental health act and, and they, they fed into early versions of, of the Mental Health Act. So, so the, I suppose this is how I've come to terms with the uncomfortable business of coercion in, in psychiatry. I have come to accept that I think it is necessary to have some coercive system uh, for people who are uh, muddled and uh, disturbed and mad. But I still feel that it's wrong that we treat it as a medical system because I think it's a social system. And because we treat it as a medical system, it is not scrutinized in uh, as much detail as it should be scrutinized in. So um, other things I wanted to say about my psychiatric training. So, I started off with that experience at medical school of feeling that that drug treatment was um, just suppressing things, and that was something that uh, was confirmed by my early years in psychiatry, especially working in the big old asylums where there are whole wards full of people who were shuffling around on high doses of antipsychotics, clearly massively sedated and suppressed by them. And I also was at that time meeting lots of patients who were being started on antidepressants and I started to realize that my experience of how people fared on antidepressants seemed to be different from other people's views 
other people seem to think that there was some connection between taking an antidepressant and getting better, but I just couldn't see that in my, in my clinical experience. It seemed to me that some people, probably most people with mildish depressive symptoms got better at some point, but it didn't necessarily seem to have any connection with when they started uh, an antidepressant as far as I could see. And uh, it was a senior registrar who I worked with who said to me once, I must have been saying something like that, and he said, oh, yeah, there are only active placebos. Um, of course, didn't you realize that? <laughs> uh, and pointed me to some literature about antidepressants and active placebos. And, and that, was a, that was a penny drop moment. I thought, yes, of course, of course, that's what they are. Um, and then went off and, and found some of that literature. I, I, I found the experience of doing psychiatric exams one of the hardest things I've ever done. I felt like I had to learn a whole load of information that bore no relationship to the experience I was having of working with people in, in you know, on the wards and in clinics. Um, and it was like, I felt like I had to empty my brain of everything that I really knew and put into it all this other sort of false knowledge you know, that came from the textbooks that I needed to um, pass the exams to particularly the MCQ questions. Um, so that was really hard and I failed my exams on several occasions. At that time though, we had to write an essay in the exams and that was actually quite a, I think in some ways quite a useful thing. And uh, because I failed my exams, it did mean that I did quite a lot of reading of the literature in order to do those essay questions and particularly of classic papers, which, which actually was quite enjoyable. So I did finally scrape through my exams and then I got a job as a research assistant on um, a drug trial. And that was a really, really interesting experience that, that I certainly wouldn't have, have wanted to go without. And I was actually being paid indirectly by the drug company. Um, it all went through the university that were doing the study, but, but yeah, I have been paid by a drug company in the past. Um, but it was really interesting to see how a, how a clinical trial worked. So it was a trial of naltrexone for people with alcohol dependency, and uh, it was a negative trial. Uh, it, and, and what happened, uh, but, but it was all run very properly. I mean, although the drug company were funding it, the chief investigator was Jonathan Chick, who is actually in our network nowadays, who was a, um, who's a very thoughtful addictions consultant from Edinburgh. So it was all run and conducted very properly, but it wasn't published for several years. It was an example of a negative trial being held up with publishing. It was published in the end, but, but not for several years by which time naltrexone was being increasingly used um, for alcohol problems. And it's still used occasionally for alcohol problems, even though that is the only RCT that's been done and that was negative. I, I, uh, I enjoyed addictions because of course you haven't got the issue of coercion in, in addiction. And also I was generally taking people off medication instead of putting people on, so that felt good. But it felt like it, there wasn't the challenge that there is in the rest of psychiatry. So I, so I went back into general psychiatry, but I went into um, psychiatric rehabilitation, which probably doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, anyway, sorry, that was a bit later on. I'll come, I'll come to that in a minute. Um, so, so other things to say about when I was working in addiction. At that time, we had an NHS-run 
Addiction Rehabilitation Unit, which feels extraordinary to think of now that the, the, the NHS would actually run a rehab service. And, and that was a, an amazing place to work. It was staffed by NHS staff. Some of them were nurses, some of them were social workers, some of them were you know, support workers. And it was a therapeutic community for people who were coming off drugs run and based in an old psychiatric hospital, in a ward in an old psychiatric hospital. And people moved over from the detox ward into the rehab ward. Uh, now I'm afraid that the role of a psychiatrist in addictions, from talking to my friends and, and from my recent experience, I worked, went back and worked in addictions for a bit a couple of years ago, is, is much more medical and you're just, so we were doing part of the therapy as trainees. We, we, you know, we, we took part in therapy groups in this therapeutic unit, so it was a great experience. Now your role as a doctor in addictions is much more, um, uh, you know, you have to sort of do the examinations and sign up the, the detox schemes, but is also often about diagnosing or not diagnosing comorbid disorders. Uh, so, you know, depression, anxiety and um, psychosis. And what I found very difficult about that when I went back into addictions recently is very often the patients have uh, an agenda to get a diagnosis and to get on treatment because you can't get um, sickness benefits just for addiction problems. But you can get them for depression or psychosis or anxiety disorders. So that was all a bit demoralizing. The, the, the patients were sort of desperate to, to get medicalized themselves very often, as well as sometimes wanting prescription mind-altering drugs of various sorts. Yeah, that, that was interesting too, that I found that, um, that there are some people who will take anything to get into a different state of mind, even if, even if the only thing on offer is haloperidol, which most people really strongly dislike. There are some people, especially people who've you know, been on various drugs for a long time, who would rather even be on that than, than not be drugged, than, to, than be sober. Anyway, so, so moving on to some of my work on drugs. So I was just thinking back to the earliest, earliest papers I wrote and published, and they were on lithium. And they were because, because when I started doing some of my reading reading papers to try and pass these exams I kept failing. I came across a paper by Guy Goodwin, of all people, about how lithium withdrawal or lithium discontinuation can induce a relapse, can, can increase the risk of someone having a relapse. That was actually published as an editorial in the British Journal of Psychiatry. Um, yeah, so that was, that was uh, an editorial in the British Journal of Psychiatry. So I realised, reading this editorial, that if lithium withdrawal increases the risk of relapse, then all the studies that lithium use is based on are flawed. They, they cannot therefore demonstrate that going on lithium in the first place is uh, prophylactic. And a lithium um, was also interesting to me because it was, it, it's always been thought of as a specific treatment that is specifically targeting manic depression and is, um, or bipolar, and is used relatively sparingly outside of that indication. And the, the British Journal of Psychiatry editor at the time must have been sympathetic to this view, because I certainly wouldn't have got, I'm sure I wouldn't get these papers published nowadays. 
and that's that's another another I think real difficulty of, of training nowadays that research that it's becoming more and more difficult to publish any research and you really have to be sort of the chief investigator of a big study to publish anything I can't pub I can hardly publish anything anymore which which I think is you know makes life as a trainee difficult because it's nice to be able to you know focus on something and, and aim to publish something on the other hand there are lots of other avenues to publish nowadays lots of blogs that uh, that people can publish on so in some ways it's got better you can get a message out to the general public more easily but much more difficult to publish academically so so i published these papers on lithium and then then started thinking about antidepressants and this active placebo idea that had been suggested to me and managed to get myself a grant to look at these studies which was which was nice but but i've always felt a bit of a fraud because i knew before i got the grant that there were only a few of them and it wasn't going to take me very long to do it but it gave me an opportunity to look at the antidepressant literature in uh, a lot of detail and to realize that an awful lot of the studies of antidepressants really didn't show them to be any different from placebo especially a lot of the um, early studies of amipramine the the biggest early study of antidepressants was conducted in the in the states it was um, run by the nimh published in 1970 and involved 700 patients and almost no one has ever heard of it because it basically didn't find any difference. It looked at imipramine versus chlorpromazine versus placebo, didn't find any difference between any of them, any real differences. But the MRC study, the British study, also found very minimal differences between imipramine and placebo. And there were lots of leading psychopharmacologists in the 1960s and 70s also commenting that they didn't think antidepressants were effective. So, so that work led me to think, well, I can't, I can't work clinically um, in, in a sort of an area where I'm going to be mainly giving, you know, expected to prescribe antidepressants. So that's why when I got my first consultant job, I looked for something that where the clinical component was mostly with people with psychosis, because although I felt and still feel that antipsychotics are pretty awful drugs. I do feel that they have some sort of place and that they can sometimes be helpful for people with psychosis simply through their ability to dampen down the thinking and emotional responses to thinking. So, so my first clinical position as a consultant was in rehabilitation psychiatry, which, which I enjoyed to some extent because it was very practical it wasn't it was about it was about just trying to to maximize people's functioning and and maximize people's quality of life and you you weren't aiming to to cure people or to eradicate symptoms you were just trying to enable people to live with them in the best way that they could i think that's been another of my long-standing problems with medicine is this i feel that there's a sort of macho macho side to medicine which is this idea that you know we're great heroes as doctors who can come along and eradicate illness and cure people and I've always been uncomfortable with that with, with that sort of attitude so something like like uh, psychiatric rehab was was nice but of course now all the um, 
NHS rehabs have closed or many of them have closed in this country. So it's difficult to, to get that sort of work. So while I was working, it was while I was working in rehab that I developed my idea of models of drug action. So, so when I was first talking about lithium, I remember other members of the Critical Psychiatry Network, which I meant to mention, I'll mention that in a minute, um, saying to me, you know, saying, well, you know, lithium's not, it's not a placebo, it's not an inactive substance. So it may, it may be that it's not prophylactic for people, but it, it's probably doing something. And the same, with, the same with thinking about antidepressants. They may be active placebos, but they are active drugs. They're not, they're not, they're not inert substances like ordinary placebos. So that started me thinking, well, what, you know, what are these drugs doing to people? And, and, and if you start thinking that, you know, these, these drugs are active substances which are changing the brain and therefore changing emotions and changing behavior because of the effects they're having on the brain of anyone, regardless of whether they have a diagnosis, then you start to think, well, maybe, that, maybe this is what they're doing rather than, rather than targeting some underlying disease as we have been encouraged to think. So, so I came up with this idea of sort of trying to contrast these two ways of thinking about what drugs might be doing. The disease-centered model, which is the idea that, the, the, the sort of mainstream idea, that idea that is maybe epitomized by the idea that lithium is targeting manic depression or bipolar the idea that drugs are working by acting on um, the underlying pathology or some, at some level at least. And so that's the disease-centered model. And then I have contrasted that with what I've called a drug-centered model, the idea that drugs are, that psychiatric drugs are psychoactive substances which are changing the normal or usual functioning of the brain in one way or another, which is and, and those changes are superimposed onto any difficulties that someone has and likely to interact with them sometimes potentially in a useful way as when antipsychotics reduce people's preoccupation and emotional distress at, at their um, unusual at the unusual experiences that they are experiencing or when you know benzodiazepines help people to you know put people into this calm and relaxed state and help to um, therefore reduce any underlying anxiety or distress that people are are experiencing so uh, and 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 again when i looked back at early literature it was the case that many psychiatrists in the early 20th century had understood this already uh, this idea and in fact, the people who first used antipsychotics, that's exactly how they understood them. They understood them as being special sorts of sedatives. And the, the studies that really clinched this, I think, to my mind, are these studies of lithium, which compared lithium with antipsychotics for people with different sorts of diagnoses and found that diagnosis does not influence the response to, to lithium versus antipsychotics. The only difference, <clears throat> so it didn't make any difference whether you had a typical sort of schizophrenic type psychosis or a, uh, an episode that was obviously a manic episode with all the features of mania. You were just as likely to respond to chlorpromazine as you were to lithium, unless you were very overactive. And if you were very overactive, i.e. very disturbed, then you responded better to an antipsychotic because 
the level of sedation that could be achieved with lithium was would be toxic so so people responded better to antipsychotics so so that really to my mind this the, the drug centered model does really kibosh you know completely undermine the idea that the drugs that we prescribe have any specific action it shows that we really don't have any convincing evidence that they are working by targeting any underlying pathological process this should make you the, the drug centered model should also immediately make you think okay the drugs are changing the brain are that you know how are they doing that is that a good thing is that safe and I, I think I think that psychiatrists have been far too blasé about this, and and I would even include myself in this. So I remember when I was reading Toxic Psychiatry, Peter Bregan's book, back uh, in the nineties. I remember reading his. He, he was suggesting back then that antipsychotics cause brain shrinkage, that the smaller ventricles that that, that are found in people with schizophrenia. Um, are a result of antipsychotic treatment. And I remember thinking then that this is a bit too extreme. And, um, you know, surely the brain is robust to drug treatment. Surely the brain and body are pretty robust. Surely they can't do this. But he was absolutely right. The animal studies um, and recent human studies show that antipsychotics indeed do shrink the brain. And actually, there's a lot of evidence out there over the years that psychiatric drugs can do lasting damage. Tardive dyskinesia, of course, we've known about for a long time. Benzodiazepine withdrawal can result in lasting permanent damage, or people who withdraw from them can, can go on to have permanent uh, neurological symptoms. And more recently, it seems that that may sometimes occur with antidepressants as well. So yeah, I think we need to be careful of that. So I, I hope that the drug-centered model provides a way of working, a, a way of working as a prescriber in psychiatry in a way that, you know, we can do with good conscience and in an honest way that we can share with, with our patients. Ideally, to do this, to work in this way properly, we would need to know a lot more about the sort of the effects of the drugs we're producing. And I think we need to always bear in mind that we have huge gaps in our knowledge about quite what they do in the long term and quite what they do to the brain at all. And I think we need to be wary that people are often looking for a drug treatment for a problem that the drug treatment is not really going to help with. But there are some problems that I think drugs can help with occasionally. As I say, I think they can dampen down psychotic symptoms I was once referred someone for a second opinion, a young woman who had been psychotic and her mother had not wanted her to see psychiatrists. And she'd been in a psychotic state for about 10 years. She was about 28 and this had been going on since she was about 18 and she could barely speak. She was really locked into this psychotic world and, and you know, having no life at all and just sitting in her bedroom. And in that sort of situation, I definitely think it's worth having a trial of antipsychotics. I think sometimes, sometimes in that situation, there's stuff going on in people's heads that they can help to suppress, and that enables people to engage with the world uh, a bit. So I, I think 
some drugs can be useful in some situations, but we should always try to be very clear about why we're using them, what they will, would be, will be helpful for, and very wary of all the other effects and potentially harmful effects that they might be having. Um, so I'm going to stop talking there. I had a little bit about sort of um, psychiatric problems in general, but I'm not going to go into that. So because I thought we ought to have some discussion. Uh, thank, thanks, Joanna. I mean, you can talk for a few more minutes if you want. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm. I'd be happy for it. But, but if people want to jump in with questions, or comments, obviously, it doesn't have to be. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a question. Yeah. When you read Guy Goodwin's paper, and and you and you thought, oh well, withdrawal symptoms might confound relapse trials, and therefore all the evidence for psychiatric drugs is flawed, and that all the practice is is not evidence based. What did you make of that? Did you think you must be wrong? Did you stop sleeping? Um, so I, I suppose my first realisation was that those long-term trials of lithium must be wrong. You know, I was, sorry, that long-term use of lithium is not justified because those long-term trials are not, not providing evidence for it. Then, then I read the literature which suggests that something similar is happening with antipsychotics. And so that raises questions about long-term antipsychotic prescribing. So was that, um, was that a major crisis? <laughs> I'm yeah. not, I can't remember, Mark, whether I'd already decided by that stage that, you know, that, that the drugs were all pretty awful or not. Yeah. But, but, but it certainly it was a sort of major realisation that, yes, this was, there was this huge gap in our knowledge and that what we were using as evidence for long-term treatment was really totally inadequate. And that is still, still the case, you know, that, because most long-term long treatment studies are discontinuation studies. Yeah. Yeah. Someone asked about clozapine. I just wanted to say a couple of words about that. So I think... I think clozapine is an unusual and interesting and very dangerous drug. So it, it seems to put people into this very placid state and you know, make them much less sort of preoccupied and distressed and aggressive. I think it does sort of reduce aggression. And, and I'm sure that's connected with its metabolic effects as well, somehow, that, that people just become placid and focused on food rather than really anything else so i think it can be helpful i certainly don't think it's a miracle drug and i think it is very toxic and lots of people definitely fall down dead on clozapine and, and i would from my clinical impression although this is a bit difficult to pinpoint in the literature but from my clinical impression you are more likely to drop down dead on clozapine than you are on other antipsychotics, especially if you are an otherwise sort of young, relatively low risk person. Thank you, Joanna, so much. I, I really appreciate this. I am a big fan and I actually decided that I was going to go into psychiatry after I read um, your work. I, I don't know, I just have a question and it might, there might not be a clear answer to it, but kind of being a trainee in Mexico, and I don't know how it works there, but here, like, I don't have the calls. I don't get to make the calls. I am just pretty much mm -hmm. doing whatever 
my superiors say I should be doing. And even when I am not, um, when I don't agree, especially being this critical about psychiatry and kind of, I don't know, sometimes the feeling is really hard to know how to survive and how to navigate. Because I, I, I'm kind of holding on and kind of surviving to be like, someday when I'm done, I can do a different type of practice and yeah. I can do something yeah. in a country that there's no such thing as a critical psychiatry movement. But, and again, I don't think there's an answer, but how to survive not being and being kind of forced and even us as trainees coerced into doing and coercing others, uh, how to deal with that? Because it's really hard and it's a really kind of lonely process. Yeah, yeah, of course, that's a really good point. I mean, so, so I mean, it's the same in this country, although I suppose it's a bit, you know, different consultants vary. But as a trainee, you are basically doing what your consultant tells you to do. And it would, would be difficult, you know, your life would be difficult if you did something that wasn't considered to be fairly mainstream, unless you knew that your consultant was okay with that. I worked with a couple of consultants who were really good, you know, who, who tolerated behaviour that I think wouldn't, you know, most consultants wouldn't, wouldn't tolerate and were very understanding and worked very closely with patients. But I also worked with plenty who weren't like that. And, and it is just survival. I don't know that I can really offer any, you know, any other. You've got to be, you've got to be careful. You've got to do what you're told. I, I think you can... If so, the patients are your allies in a way. In this, so if you, you know, if you, no one can criticize you for offering patients information, and then if patients make choices that are not nice guideline or mainstream choices, then that, you know, that that is a is a good way sometimes of being able to do what you what you would like to be able to do. But but yeah, but I think it is a you know, it's all, all you're always treading a fine line. As well you know having to having to toe the line to some extent while you're while you're a trainee is difficult um I, I think it's really difficult i suppose trying to find points of agreement is always helpful um or or other you know identifying other seniors or other staff around who might have you know similar points of view uh, and, 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 and that is much easier when you're a consultant. So that is some, you know, you, you will be able to make your own decisions as a, as a consultant. You'll still have to justify yourself, but they will be your decisions rather than someone else's. So that is, that is something that will eventually improve. That, that problem will eventually go away. You'll be able to make your own decisions. All the way through though, I think, I, I think it's yeah that you just you just have to try and find points of agreement with people rather than getting into disagreements if you possibly can because that's that in my experience just leads to you having lots of stress so sorry i can't think of any, anything else really <laughs> it's it's a real problem isn't it because it's so, so long the training it's such a long time that you have to do what someone else tells you to do really obviously obviously trying to work with consultants that you you know who, who you think are going to be sympathetic as the other you know trying to get into posts with people who you might agree with is the other thing to do but i'm sure everyone is trying to do that anyway so it 
so I wrote this paper recently, which is comparing the ideas of, of Thomas Saz and Wittgenstein. And that was partly inspired by finding a quote from Wittgenstein. I'm sure you know about Thomas Saz. So, so Thomas Saz is, is saying that, that there's a difference between a condition of the body and ordinary self-determined behavior. So sometimes behavior will be driven by a brain disease, but most of the time, you know, our behavior is something different from, from things that are going on in our body. And mental disorder is usually a form of ordinary, that is self-determined behavior, not a consequence of a brain disease or illness. And there are two responses to SAS. And one response is to say, no, brain, mental disorders are brain diseases and, and therefore not um, ordinary behavior. And the other response is to say that they're not exactly brain diseases, but they're aligned with physical diseases in some way because of the similarity of psychological and biological processes. Now, th this paper was partly inspired because I found this quote by Wittgenstein in, in a book called Culture and Value, where he says that madness doesn't have to be regarded as an illness. Why, why can't someone just change, have a, have a sudden change of character? And then he goes on to make this he goes on to sort of elaborate to say, you know, everyone's mistrustful and to some degree and maybe more so towards people, their relations or people close to them. Why shouldn't someone become more distrustful of other people? Why, why shouldn't someone become more withdrawn? What he's saying here is, why do we have to think of this as an illness? These, these are things that, you know, that we're familiar with that happen to some, you know, that to some degree we all experience and may happen to a greater degree um, at times for various reasons in, in some people. So, so he's arguing that, that we shouldn't necessarily equate mental disorder with disease in much the same way that people like R.D. Lang were arguing that mental disorder is, is understandable, is meaningful. And, um, and that view also goes back to Adolf Meyer, who, who was the sort of leading light of US psychiatry in the mid 20th century who had this idea again that mental disorders were misguided but nevertheless genuine and, and meaningful attempts to deal with situations. So Wittgenstein is supporting the idea that you can't, that, that, that mental illness cannot be assumed to be a brain disease. There may be some cases in which it turns out that it is, but it can't, we can't assume that it is. But Wittgenstein is also famous for making a critique of psychology, which is a critique of the, that other response to Saz's views, the response that people make that says that there's something, there's something not equivalent but similar between a mental disorder and um, a physical illness. And Wittgenstein is suggesting that this idea is based on that, that there is a fundamental mistake in Western philosophy, that we've come to think of mental attributes as things in their own right, that can somehow be thought of and studied separately from the person who has them or shows them. So, for example, we speak of having a mind and of our mind causing our behaviour. And this, this is a mistake, according to Wittgenstein. Um, because what we really are is human beings that have, or beings that have certain, certain faculties, certain mental faculties. 
and our mental faculties are not uh, are moreover not necessarily private and internal they are unavoidably manifested in behavior so the the inner world is connected with the outer world all the time they're, they're, they are the outer world of behavior is one facet of the same phenomena that is the inner world of thoughts and feelings and emotions so you can't separate them so, so Peter Hacker, who's this Wittgensteinian scholar who I've been reading recently, talks about how mind is an oblique way of talking about human faculties and their exercise. And Saz makes um, similar arguments about that. So this links in with a whole strain of philosophy, which can be loosely termed as anti-positivism, which is the argument that you cannot apply the methods of physical science to the study of human beings and their behavior and their activity in their world. Psycholo psychological attributes are human affairs, not natural ones. And, and what Wittgenstein is saying is that the, the, the mental is clearly on the side of the human, not the natural, if you're dividing the world up into how we, into natural versus human. So what this suggests to me is that mental disorder can be understood as, as patterns of socially, of self-determined behavior, not, not necessarily brain disease, although very occasionally it might turn out to be brain disease, but generally not. Generally mental disorder is self-determined behavior, but behavior that is socially problematic for one reason or another. But, but, but also behavior that is not necessarily always simply we can't always simply respond to it as we would respond to most other ordinary human behavior because sometimes the behavior and mental states of someone who's labeled as having a mental disorder is lacks rationality and the agency is not necessarily the same. So Jennifer Radden, who's this US philosopher, talked about, she showed this picture at a talk I went to that she gave by Goya, Casa de, de Locos, uh, the madhouse, and she talked about how this picture shows, shows mad people having agency, people who are you know, obviously quite disturbed, quite manic, quite psychotic, but nevertheless are doing things, have, have dressed up in various meaningful ways, ways that are meaningful to them and, and, are, and are doing things, making gestures or, or whatever. So she described, she talked about madness as an example of exuberant agency but you could maybe sometimes also uh, suggest that it's agency that is sometimes not ideally suited to making practical decisions or to you know getting on in a practical day-to-day -day way uh, and that's why people need help and support so somehow that brought me back to the idea that psychiatry is a social institution that is concerned with socially problematic behavior of one sort or another so that's, that's Wittgenstein <laughs> in a nutshell. So thank you for staying, guys. We hope you enjoyed the session as much as we did. And as we mentioned before, these talks are offered by, via Zoom to training members of the Critical Psychiatry Network, and we usually have a very enriching discussion after the presentations. Anyway, if you would like to be part of this, please drop us an email, and we will see you next time. Ta-ra! Ta-ra!